It's time for a thought experiment. Let's say you wake up one morning, pull on your socks, and decide to take over the world. Being a strategic person, you figure it's best to begin by taking over your own home culture. You'll usher out its old beliefs and value systems, replace them with the new worldview you've invented, and change the planet from there. How will you get started? Let's think about it. Every culture is made of three age groups. Seniors, the middle-aged, and youth. All these individuals hold beliefs, and their beliefs and actions influence everyone around them, especially within families. To change your culture's beliefs, you need to target the age groups within families differently. Take seniors, for instance. With more life experience than anyone else, seniors have had the most time to become established in their beliefs. However, they also have the least time left to influence upcoming generations. So you'll want to marginalize the seniors. Let them talk amongst themselves, but meanwhile promote the message that seniors aren't relevant to the rest of society, and especially to the youth. What about the middle-aged? Chances are they'll already be somewhat set in their beliefs, and they're the most responsible for training the next generation. So you'd be wise to mellow their beliefs, foster complacency in the parents, keep them busy, and tell them society will take responsibility for training the kids. And the kids? They're the ones who represent society's future. Today's students are tomorrow's decision makers, parents, teachers, and politicians. Youth also have the most malleable beliefs, and they're the easiest to influence in mass through the media and public education. So you want to use those channels to shape youth's beliefs, ensuring a future society built on the values you've created. And if you want to be really strategic, you'll use those same channels of media and public education to launch an attack on the family. After all, family is where discipleship happens. It's where parents and grandparents transfer their beliefs to the next generation. So you need to do everything possible to fragment, redefine, and undermine families. Now you can sit back to admire your efforts. Look at the students championing the slogans you've programmed into them. Watch the parents working by themselves absorbed in spheres of their own. See how parents and youth interact less as you make family seem irrelevant. And look at the elders, sidelined to a whisper of forgotten days. Congratulations, you're well on your way to changing the world. Flip through history's pages and you'll notice how often world-changing regimes in the past have used this strategy including under Marx, Stalin, and Lenin. If we look at Western cultures over the last couple centuries, we can see how this same strategy underlies society's shift from holding somewhat biblical values to highly secular ones. Our values stem from our worldviews, the set of beliefs we use to explain the whole world around us. Our worldviews form the basis for our thinking in every area of life, and we can base our thinking on one of two possible worldview foundations, God's Word, or human reasoning. Some Christians alive today can remember a time when Western society still largely respected God's word as humanity's foundation for truth. But looking around our society today, it's easy to see that our culture is founded on secular humanism, the worldview which states, there is no God and truth is up to humans. That means humans decide everything from what's right and wrong to who counts as a person. As a result, we've seen issues like relative morals, abortion, and euthanasia sweeping society. 
How does an entire culture shift its thinking so dramatically? That shift begins with an attack on God's word. When a culture stops believing God's word, that leaves only one other foundation for truth, human reasoning. The most subtle yet efficient way to make a culture stop believing God's word is to make its future decision makers, the youth, question Genesis 1-11 because these chapters provide the foundation for all major doctrines in scripture. And the quickest way to make youth question Genesis is to teach them that earth is millions of years old and that all living things evolved from common ancestors. Today, it's no secret that public schools tend to exclusively teach evolution and other unbiblical ideas as fact. They do this in the name of being religiously neutral. But Jesus said in Matthew 12:30 that whoever is not with him is against him. So really, there is no such thing as religious neutrality. Instead, secular education is really religious education, training youth in the religion of secular humanism. To see how youth are the focus of a spiritual battle for society's future, let's uncover seven facts about evolutionary education. Fact number one, evolutionary teaching is a humanist spiritual agenda. To see why this is true, we need to understand evolution's role in the religion of humanism. According to Humanist International, an organization which envisions creating a humanist world, humanism is not theistic and it does not accept supernatural views of reality. Because secular humanists begin by rejecting the supernatural, they limit themselves to only seeking natural explanations for everything, including human origins. That's where evolution comes in, to explain humans' existence apart from a creator. Evolution is such a core belief of humanism that the American Humanist Association's current manifesto states, Humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change. The Secular Humanist Declaration, published by the Council for Secular Humanism in 1980, also listed evolution and education among its 10 main points. While saying that creationists have freedom to express their viewpoints in society, the declaration states, We deplore the efforts by fundamentalists, especially in the United States, to invade the science classrooms, requiring that creationist theory be taught to students and requiring that it be included in biology textbooks. This is a serious threat both to academic freedom and to the integrity of the educational process. In our view, education should be the essential method of building free, humane, and democratic societies. Three years after this declaration's released, humanist John Dunphy famously penned these words in an essay entitled, A Religion for a New Age. I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classrooms by teachers who correctly perceive their role as proselytizers of a new faith. A religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of education level, preschool, daycare, or large state university. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism, resplendent with its promise of a world in which the never-realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. Well, nowadays, we don't have to look far to see how well this strategy has worked. 
as another famous humanist, Charles Francis Potter, foresaw back in 1930. Education is the most powerful ally of humanism, and every American school is a school of humanism. What can a theistic Sunday school's meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching? Clearly, public education is humanism's chief battle strategy to build a society based on man's word instead of God's. So it's no shock that in today's humanistic education systems, it's often not only the evolution that's pushed, but also other ideas from man's word. And that brings us to fact two. Evolution is linked to other man-made teachings, including Eastern mysticism. If you type mindfulness, meditation, or yoga into your search engines alongside words like public education, you'll discover how quickly Eastern practices have flooded all levels of Western public education. While in some respects these practices may sound harmless or even healthy, there's no sidestepping the spiritual basis for even their secularized forms. The founder of one popular American meditation, for instance, describes the secular mindfulness classes they offer in public schools as stealth Buddhism, packaging Buddhist instruction within secular vocabulary. Why are supposedly secular schools enamored with Eastern spirituality? The idea that humans are soulless, meaningless, biological machines doesn't satisfy us spiritually because God hardwired us for relationships with Him. So many people crave a teaching that tickles human sense of spirituality without requiring them to give up belief in evolution or to acknowledge that they're accountable to the biblical creator. Eastern mysticism fits this bill perfectly, offering diverse belief systems like Hinduism and Buddhism and New Ageism. Such beliefs took the West by storm after Darwin published On the Origin of the Species. Darwin's ideas shook many Westerners' trust in the Bible but fit well with Eastern mysticism. Swami Vivekananda, who helped popularize yoga in late 19th century America, even argued, The idea of evolution was to be found in the Vedas long before the Christian era, but until Darwin said it was true, it was regarded as mere Hindu superstition. 20th century pioneer New Ageist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, also an influential Darwinist, taught that evolution would advance humanity to what he called an omega point of attaining godlike consciousness. Interestingly, one of the most prominent evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, Theodosius Dobzhansky, concluded his book The Biology of Ultimate Concern with a chapter extensively quoting Chardin's spiritualistic ideas. Chardin wasn't alone in deeming evolution an engine of spirituality. Annie Besant, who founded a 20th century occult known as Theosophy, taught that a spiritualized version of natural evolution allows living things to reach their full divine potential, to express themselves as gods. Even today, proponents of the movement called transhumanism advance a related message, claiming that technology will let humans evolve traits such as immortality, essentially becoming like God. Well, doesn't the line, you will become like God, sound familiar? It's the same lie the serpent sold Eve in Eden, a lie which still resurfaces in countless false religions, including secular humanism. After all, if humans evolved apart from a creator, we must be, like gods ourselves, responsible for defining good and evil. Evolutionary humanism and Eastern mysticism go hand in glove especially in Western public education, because they both make man's word the authority, saying we can be like God. 
Accordingly, we might expect that intensely evolutionary teaching does not affect Christian education. But here's fact number three. Evolutionary teaching isn't just a secular school issue. America's research group documented this reality in 2011, after surveying over 200 evangelical colleges. The study found that nearly 8 in 10 leaders of the religious departments at these schools believed Earth is millions of years old, an idea that opposes scripture but is necessary for evolution. Even globally, Christian education seems to embrace evolution like a long-lost relative. In 2009, for instance, the Christian Higher Education Journal, which reaches a network of 180 Christian colleges and universities around the world, published an article endorsing the view that God created using evolution. The article admitted that throughout history, most people who base their thinking on God's word, including New Testament writers and Jesus himself, treated Genesis 1-11 as literally true. However, the article also claimed that the Bible's science is outdated, like by thousands of years. So Christians should shelf Genesis 1-11 as ancient poetry, dismiss the New Testament's literal interpretations of Genesis because the apostles didn't know better, and assume there was no literal Adam who committed literal original sin. When we reinterpret Genesis this way, what happens to the gospel? In answer, consider these words written by an evolutionary creationist. God does not send Jesus to die. God does not require Jesus' death in order to forgive humanity's sin. As a demonstration of God's immense love and compassion, God takes on human flesh and bone. He experiences torture, humiliation, and isolation on the cross. In the end, Jesus experiences death. And in so doing, Christ connects to humanity in a new and powerful way. Okay, did he catch what happened there? This writer is claiming that the purpose of Jesus' death has nothing to do with paying for sin which spread through Adam to all humans as Romans 5.12 teaches. That totally opposes the core salvation message of scripture, all to accommodate human evolution. As the writer summarized, The view sketched above does not require a historical Adam and Eve or a traditional concept of original sin, making it more compatible with evolution. Did I mention this writer teaches philosophy at a Christian university? Let the buyer beware. Going to a Christian school does not exempt youth from needing to defend their faith against evolutionary or other unbiblical doctrines. If these doctrines are true, then the Bible is wrong. And if the Bible is wrong, why would church-raised youth continue to believe it? This question highlights fact number four. Evolutionary teaching helps explain why so many youth are leaving the church. For over two decades, multiple studies have shown that around two-thirds of youth who grow up in Western Christian homes stop attending church, and some studies show those rates are even higher. In Canada, more than two-thirds of 18-34 year olds who do attend weekly services for any religion were born outside Canada, reflecting how youth fallout rates are highest among native Westerners. Why are young people draining from Western churches? That's what Answers in Genesis founder Ken Ham and Britt Beamer of America's Research Group wanted to find out, documenting their research in the book, Already Gone. This study of a thousand ex-churchgoers across America revealed that nearly 9 in 10 youth who left the church began doubting God's word during middle school or high school. And ironically, teens who grew up attending Sunday school were more likely to leave church. 
Sunday schools often teach the Bible as stories rather than true events grounded in real science and real history. So it's not surprising that in 2018, Barna researchers reported that nearly half of American church-going teens agreed that the church seems to reject much of what science tells us about the real world. Correspondingly, the same study found that today's teens are twice as atheistic as any prior generation, including millennials. In response to these trends, churches and families clearly must equip students of all ages with answers to defend their biblical worldview against teachings like evolution in millions of years, especially because these teachings are everywhere. And that's where Fact 5 comes in. Evolutionary teachings impact virtually every school subject. The most obvious evolution-heavy subject is biology. But biological evolution would require millions of years to happen. So students studying geology, paleontology, or other earth and ocean sciences are practically guaranteed to learn that rock layers and fossils formed evolutionary eons ago. Of course, an old earth means an old universe, so astronomy classes will also teach long ages and cosmological evolution. Are students who don't study science off the hook from being taught evolution as fact? Hardly. As part of a secular worldview, evolutionary interpretations affect the way humans look at everything, including ourselves. By saying we are not created beings, evolution makes a statement about human nature which impacts our approach to virtually every subject related to being human, including psychology, anthropology, sociology, philosophy, history, art, music. Students can expect to learn these and other subjects through an evolutionary lens, and not just in university. This brings us to fact six. Evolutionary teachings impact not only multiple school subjects, but also every age level. Exactly which evolutionary ideas students learn at different grade levels will vary by location. Many regions across North America amp up evolutionary teaching in middle to high school. But public education, not to mention secular media, often plants evolutionary seeds in kids' minds long before then. In fact, inventing ways to spoon-feed evolutionary doctrines to kindergartners and preschoolers has practically become a sport among some education researchers, using storybooks, figurines, illustrations, and cutting-edge knowledge of how kids' brains works. Evolutionary learning interventions try convincing youngsters that everything alive today belongs to one evolutionary family. But here's something remarkable. According to the researchers who developed these interventions, kids intuitively tend to see design, not evolution, in nature. Researchers trying to correct such thinking in American 5-8 to eight year olds said, These reasoning biases include tendencies to teleologically assume that the natural world is agentive and operates in intentional, designed, and purpose-driven ways. Basically, that's a sciencey way of saying that kids naturally perceive the universe is designed. And education experts in America aren't the only ones trying to wipe that kind of thinking from children's minds. In Germany, for instance, the organization EvoKids aims to mandate evolutionary teaching throughout all levels of German primary school instead of beginning in grade 10. In France, where evolutionary teaching holds a central place in the national curricula, schools ingrain evolution and millions of years into students from age 9. Look at the education standards for almost any Western country, and you're bound to find evolution among the core learning requirements. And that brings us to Fact 7. Evolutionary teaching impacts countless students worldwide. 
To see how globally evolutionary teaching affects students, consider a document from the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, or PACE, which sets the legal agenda for 57 nations. In 2007, the PACE published Resolution 1580, The Dangers of Creationist Teaching in Education. It stated, If we are not careful, creationism could become a threat to human rights, which are a key concern of the Council of Europe. The Parliamentary Assembly therefore urges the member states, and especially their education authorities, to firmly oppose the teaching of creationism as a scientific discipline on an equal footing with the theory of evolution, and in general the presentation of creationist ideas in any discipline other than religion, and to promote the teaching of evolution as a fundamental scientific theory in the school curriculums. Did you catch that? The PACE is urging nations to exclusively teach young people the core doctrine of secular humanism which undermines the gospel. The resolution concluded by asking these nations to sign another document called the Inter-Academy Partnership, or IAP, Statement on the Teaching of Evolution, that's published for a network of organizations that oversee nations' education standards. The statement declares that, among other things, scientific evidence has never contradicted human evolution over millions of years. And so far, 68 national and international science education foundations around the world have signed this pledge from Albania to Zimbabwe. This global push for evolutionary teaching has been a long time coming. Evolutionary biologist Sir Julian Huxley, who served as the president of the British Humanist Association, was the first director general for UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. He began that office in 1946, and later published his original framework for UNESCO in 1979, which stated, the general philosophy of UNESCO should, it seems, be a scientific world humanism, global in extent and evolutionary in background. The unifying of traditions in a single common pool of experience, awareness, and purpose is the necessary prerequisite for further, major progress in human evolution. Accordingly, although political unification in some sort of world government will be required for the definitive attainment of this stage, unification in the things of the mind is not only necessary, but can pave the way for other types of unification. In other words, Sir Huxley's goals for the world's most powerful education organization was to create a one-world humanist society founded on evolutionary philosophy. His statements unmask evolutionary teaching for what it is, the focal point of a long-running agenda to build a humanist world founded on man's word rather than God's. And looking around our culture today, we can see that this agenda is well underway. Through public education and mass media, the secularists have won the hearts and minds of the majority of youth who represent society's future. Parents have largely handed over discipleship of their kids to the secularists. Seniors are being marginalized and families undermined. How can Christians respond? First, we must return to our foundation, defending God's word as our authority for truth without compromise. Second, we must uphold families and resist falling for lies which undermine family in any way, including the myth that seniors are less relevant and should be segregated from youth. Churches, which are another type of family, may adopt this mindset by separating age groups, but all this does is sever vital mentorship opportunities. 
and that's especially counterproductive when we consider that Barna researchers recently found that connections with older Christian adult mentors help set apart the mere 10% of church-raised youth who maintain the strongest biblical worldviews as young adults. Third, we must equip youth with biblical answers and critical thinking skills to combat the lies which culture targets at them. This also requires arming parents, grandparents, pastors, and other mentors with answers that they can in turn use to disciple youth. That's why ministries like Answers in Genesis are so important for equipping families and churches to defend their worldview against attack from secular culture, restore the foundation of biblical authority, and reclaim culture for the gospel.